Are we recording? Yes, we are. Fantastic. Let's go. Hi, everyone. I'm Louisa. I'm an autistic academic at the University of Reading, and I'm your podcast host for season three of Psychological. As you might already know, if you've listened to the previous two seasons with Sue, Psychological is a podcast that started during lockdown, and it aims to make an evidence-based contribution to conversations about child and adolescent well-being, development and learning, and neurodiversity. Today's Psychological is with Dr. Rachel Nesbitt, a postdoctoral research fellow at the College of Medicine and Health at the University of Exeter. And she's on the phone with me today to talk about one of her recent papers, Perceived Barriers and Facilitators of Adventurous Play in Schools, a Qualitative Systematic Review. That was a mouthful (laughs) of a title. (laughs) So hi, Rachel. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Fantastic. So first off, we'll jump in. Um, We'll start with what you found. So could you tell me what you discovered in this piece of research? Yeah, so what we were really interested in here is to find out what are the things that might make it hard or easier for schools to offer children with adventurous play opportunities. So when I talk about adventurous play, what we're referring to here is play which is thrilling, exciting for children, where they may be able to take some age-appropriate risks. And what we found from this review was that there are multiple barriers and facilitators of adventurous play in schools. Um, And I'm happy to discuss a lot more about that. Um, But yes, lots of barriers and facilitators uh, that we identified. Awesome. So um, I guess we'll go into what those barriers actually were in a minute. But firstly, what actually motivated you to conduct your study? Yeah, great question. So what we know about adventurous play is that it's on the decline. So what we've seen over the last couple of decades is that children don't have as much opportunity to engage in this type of play. And perhaps if we think about in school, we know that um, schools are very different in their approach to play, but often children don't have these opportunities within school. Um, And what What the aim of the grant is that I'm currently working on is to examine whether adventurous play may actually be really good for children's mental health. So through playing in an adventurous way, children learn the skills um, such as dealing with uncertainty, learning to cope and learning to challenge themselves, which may actually be really beneficial um, in their future, um, sort of when they become older and they're faced with situations that may be scary or uncertain. Wow. Yeah. Sounds really important then, doesn't it? So maybe now, now that we know how important adventurous play is, would you be able to tell us maybe a couple of the barriers that you identified in your analysis? Yeah, of course. Um, So there were quite a few things that came out. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly, one of the most important barriers that came out was all to do with external judgment and legislative factors. So um, things like schools being um, sort of fearful of accountability. Um, So if a child hurt themselves, um, would they be accountable for that? Um, Fears of external judgment. So if something went wrong, um, would people complain? Would would perhaps they get in trouble in some way? And also the consequences of them being deemed to fail in duty of care. And so there were some of the barriers. Also, more specifically, if we're talking about children engaging in adventurous play, we often saw that staff stepping back, um, sorry, stepping in and intervening in children's play was was a really big barrier here. So staff often would remove children from play equipment or or direct children's play through language to stop children from engaging in these types of play. So if they think maybe they're doing something dangerous, they would stop them from engaging in it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. Like they do have a duty of care for the kids. They don't want them to hurt themselves. Um, 
I don't know if you've looked into it in this paper or you have kind of any aims to look into it, but are there any kind of aims to address some of those barriers and work out how you could deal with some of those to make adventurous play more accessible? Yeah, great question. So actually, all of this work um, from this paper and also ongoing work that I'm currently conducting is all feeding into an intervention. And um, so the findings from this review we're using to sort of develop intervention uh, recommendations and also recommendations for policy and practice. Um, so definitely. So the work that we are going to be conducting um, going forward we are intervening in schools, um, sort of trying to offer adventurous play opportunities and trying to address some of these concerns uh, through our training with school staff, um, as well as the wider school community, including parents. Fantastic. That sounds really exciting. Uh, are you worried? Is that what you're working on at the moment then? In your Yes. Yeah. So, yes. So we will, um, COVID, COVID permitting, we will be uh, visiting schools uh, this year to carry out that work. Fantastic. That's really exciting. Right, well, we'll get back to the paper that we're talking about now. So where you looked at those barriers, etc. So um, how did you actually do the study that we're talking about today? Yeah, great question. So the study was actually what we call a qualitative systematic review. So what that one, what that aims to do is to have a look at all the research that has been conducted in this area and to try to draw together the conclusions from all of these papers to enhance our understanding. So what we did here was we did a systematic search of all papers that had looked at adventurous or risky play within a school context um, for primary school aged children. Um, and then from that, we sort of um, went through those findings, read the papers in a lot of depth um, and tried to draw out the similar findings uh, across the papers and sort of the consistencies um, there to sort of bring together these findings into what we call synthesised findings. So overarching findings um, that are sort of consistent within the papers um, to bring them together. Nice. How many papers did you end up looking at in the end? So in, uh, I think we start we started off with 1,735 papers. Um, in the end, we've ended up with um, just nine. So quite, um, and there are various reasons why they may not have been included in that final um, fi final pool of papers. Um, mainly if they didn't reference anything to do with, with risky play or benefits or attitudes, um, if they weren't within a school context or if they weren't school-aged children, for example. That's quite lucky that it only ended up being nine after that, out of that huge sample that would have taken forever if you ended up with yeah, And I mean, this process takes a long time anyway. And I think what it's really highlighted here is that there is still an importance to carry out research to, to understand this phenomenon within school-aged children yeah. and also within a UK context. So only one of the papers identified was within a UK context. And I think that's important to add. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess it's, if it's quite a small area of research, definitely what you're doing is really important. So it'd be interesting to hear more when you've done the rest of your studies and your intervention and everything as well. I'd love to hear more about that. Right. Well, um, so you ended up with a lot of data. It took a long time. You had a lot of papers. Um, how long did it actually take to kind of do all the analysis? And how many of you did the analysis as well? I guess with things like that, you have to have people to kind of cross-reference. So how many people analysed it and kind of how long did it take you guys to do that? Yeah, um, good question. I feel like the last 18 months are sort of blurred into one continuous day. So so yeah. in terms of timeline, um, I believe we started this work um, December um, mm -hmm. 20, 20, 
2020. Yeah, that's right. Um, And we submitted the paper for publication in July 2021. Um, And in terms of the process and who was involved, so there were two of us that screened all of those papers. So we screened them all at abstract level. um, And then if they made it through, we also looked at the whole text. um, And that was two of us for that process. So that was also Dr. Charlotte Bagnall, who's at Manchester University. Um, And then from there, um, I, I personally sort of pulled all those findings together and what we do is we sort of cross-reference and we have a sort of coding meetings where we discuss those findings to make sure that they're credible and I think that's one thing to note with qualitative work and sort of qualitative approaches is that there is a level of subjectivity to it and it's just finding the most sort of credible um, or, or at least a credible interpretation of those findings. Yeah kind of making sure you agree as much as possible with other researchers as well so it's not just one person's kind of interpretation yeah super important. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, so can't, we've kind of covered this a little bit already, the question that I'm going to ask now, but just kind of in general from this study and the work that you're doing, what do you actually think that sort of we can learn really from the study or is there, or is there anything we haven't covered already that you think we can learn from the study? Yeah, I think I think that's a really great question. I think One of the things that we can learn, I guess, in terms of the facilitators, so we've spoken a bit about the barriers, but we also know that there are things that might make it easier for schools to offer adventurous play opportunities. Um, So things like how they perceive children. So often what came out here was that some staff perceive children as unable to judge risk or sort of incapable of initiating play. So what I think we can learn from this is that actually recognising children's abilities to play and their ability to judge risk for themselves may actually be a really positive thing. Or even stepping back and letting children play and sort of trusting that sometimes it might be our own internal anxieties that are holding the child back as opposed to the child himself. Um, and also, I think it really just highlights that we that we need a lot more education around these things. So often we need to, we need to know why these things are good to begin with. And I've been speaking to parents and school staff as part of um, sort of ongoing qualitative work with this. And often what they're telling me is if we knew these things were important and we knew that there was evidence to support it, um, then we're perhaps more likely to be on board. Um, So I think that's, that's one thing that we're definitely learning from this. Um, The importance of children's play, the importance of, of sort of adult constraints on children's play and the importance of why we're interested in this to begin with, which is to try to to make the world a better place for children. Definitely. That sounds fantastic. I mean, I guess um, maybe in young, much younger children, like not school-aged children, there are, I guess, opportunities for slightly safer, risky play because they have like soft play and things which are designed to be bouncy so they can jump around and play with stuff and be a bit safer. So I'm wondering if there are ways to kind of implement safer methods of riskier play and playgrounds as well that maybe in the future could come out of this sort of research that would be yeah I think sorry yeah I think definitely and I think when we speak about play often what people focus on is sort of that preschool age or or early years and we know that actually there is especially within the UK early years curriculum focuses much more on play-based learning however as children move up in the school, play is often seen as less of a priority or less of a way to spend finances or resources. Um, But what we also know from that is that in terms of um, risky play or or adventurous play, uh, I think 
often perhaps we have quite strong views on, on, on what that may be or how dangerous that might be. But what we know is that children are often quite good at judging risks themselves. Of course, we don't want to put children in situations where they're, where they're unsafe. Um, and I think it's just about perhaps not having this risk. Children need to be as safe as possible um, and sort of having this more risk benefit approach. So actually by keeping children safe or not allowing children to, to try new things or, or perhaps engage in things that might scare them a little bit, we may be doing more harm than good by protecting them long term because we're not appreciating that these things that they could engage in actually have quite a lot of benefits for them. Mm. Definitely. I mean, I, I remember when I was at primary school myself, every time there was a kind of very risky game on the playground, it was shut down almost immediately. So even if it was only slightly risky, if there was a s- small opportunity of somebody getting yeah. hurt, we weren't allowed to do it. So, yeah, playtime yeah. wasn't that exciting. We ended up just sort of playing with like twigs and branches and setting up little shops was kind of the most imaginative thing we could really do. Because, yeah, anytime we did something slightly risky, it was a yeah. stop to it. So. Yeah, Yeah, no, definitely. And I think a lot of children uh, in this day and age can relate to that. But I think and also a a really interesting thing is that what we're seeing is that teachers and school staff are quite inconsistent in their approaches. So it may be quite confusing for children, actually, because one member of school staff may allow them to engage in a particular activity, whereas if another staff member is on duty, that's not okay. So I think we also need to be really clear on on the messaging that children are getting in terms of what might be acceptable and what might not be. Yeah, that's a really good point as well, actually. Yeah, not all staff are the same, are they? So if there are kind of actual processes that are implemented and people know what sort of things are acceptable and if you know that the research is important maybe school staff can get together to kind of chat about what sort of play is okay based on the research so yeah it's super interesting research thank you so much for talking to us about it (laughs) or me I just said us I'm one person but thank you for talking to me about it it was really interesting um it's a little bit less related to the study oh actually this is a good question I'm going to ask this one quickly if you could do anything different about what you've done so far for your research everything you've done so far would you do anything different or kind of look at anything else that you haven't looked at so far yeah really good question I think um in terms of the review not necessarily obviously the research is already out there so it's just a case of piling that together but one thing that was noted is we we were looking for any article that looked at what's what people thought of adventurous play or risky play within a school context and one of the things that came out quite strongly was the need for parental support or school staff being concerned about parents but actually the voice of parents was missing so although there was all of this sort of fear about parents there weren't any studies that were looking at what parents actually thought Um, and that's something that we're currently addressing so I'm currently speaking to parents to try to address that gap because there's definitely something to be said Um, and what seems to be happening is that parents um, are perhaps um, see themselves as a potential barrier for schools but actually they're quite positive about these if they know it's good for children they're quite happy for their children to to potentially have these opportunities in school and school staff seem to think that you know parents wouldn't allow it or parents would complain so there definitely needs to be these conversations between these parties in order for us to sort of um, allow children or offer children these opportunities going forward. Brilliant. Yeah, so that's another really important thing to look at. So also excited to hear what you find there. So it'd be great to hear about that in the future. Well, anyway, thank you very much for that. Um, Another little final question just before we finish, not related to the research, but just in general for anyone earlier on in their career than you are at the moment. Do you have any advice for anyone who might be a bit earlier on? So students or early career researchers? 
Yeah. Um, so much advice. Um, I would say probably a couple of really important things uh, that perhaps I would have told my younger self. Um, so first of all, surround yourself by supportive people. So people that are at a similar career stage to you um, that are going through similar things. Um, and I think that's been even more important in the last 18 months when often we sort of haven't been in an office environment. So often me and some colleagues from different universities will have things like co-working sessions, which is just a moment to check in and support each other. And another thing I would say is don't be afraid to sort of approach perhaps senior academics or people that are sort of a bit further on in their career path than you and ask for support or ask for advice. Um, and, and I think that's one thing that I've learned, the importance of, of having good mentors and, and sort of people that are willing to support you. And don't be afraid to ask those questions or make those connections because they would definitely benefit you in your future. And just have the confidence to just send that email. Fantastic. Thank you. So, yeah, that's really good advice. Just building up your sort of supportive and collaborative network is fantastic advice for whatever stage of your career you're at. So brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Um, We're going to close off the podcast for today. So thank you so much for your time today, Rachel. And for anyone listening, thank you for joining us. You can find out more about Rachel and her work by following the links in the podcast description on Buzzsprout or in your podcast app. And join us again at the same time next week for another episode of Psychological. Bye.